I wrote a chapter in a book called Mandem, and the chapter is called Condomless Sex, because I wanted to talk about, as gay men, for the best part of 30 years, we were in, instructed that the good way to have sex is to use condoms. And if you deter from that, then you're a bad gay. And I wanted to educate people around PrEP and around other kind of improvements in HIV prevention and just this concentration on gay and bi men specifically using condoms in the way that we don't police straight men, we don't police straight people. Hi everyone and welcome to the Unapologetic podcast. My name is Pierre, I am your host and the founder of the ethical gay brand Unapologetic. Today, I'm talking to Phil Samba, a multi-talented and multi-faceted writer, social activist, and researcher from Sierra Leone. So <laughs> welcome, Phil, and thank you for talking. To thank you for having me. I would like to start with the first question that came to my mind. What is a social activist? I learned this particular phrase from Monroe Bergdorf. So a social activist is actually someone that's striving to make social change in the world. I go about it in multiple ways. I work in HIV and sexual health, and um, I work for uh, an organization called The Love Tank. We work with marginalized communities and basically trying to reduce HIV and poor sexual health outcomes. We do it through campaigns, research, writing, advocacy, sometimes lobbying if necessary. And we're quite known in Europe, essentially, as being one of the best organizations that does this work because of just the breadth of work that we do and the quality of it. What's the link between Prepster and the Love Tank? Prepster was the organization started in 2015 at a time where Prep, which is a drug that you take before and after sex that stops you from getting HIV. It wasn't available in the UK at all in 2015, although it was FDA approved in America in 2012. And there was lots of struggles with accessing it. And we always knew that it was a big HIV game changer or what it could possibly be. We didn't actually officially get PrEP on the NHS until 2020. PrEP is available to anyone that is predominantly affected by HIV. Trans people, black African men, women that are straight, queer, bi and gay men, sex workers, people that inject drugs. A lot of the work that I do at the Love Tank in which I'd be like speaking directly with healthcare professionals that work in sexual health and trying to get them to change their behavior or understand important things around language or the lack of visibility and representation we have, reminding them the importance of research, especially when it comes to black British men, because a lot of the time we depend on US data. And then it's speaking directly to my community. What inspired you to become a a social activist. It happened by accident. I think that's usually how it goes. I met um, my directors, um, Mark Thompson and um, Will Nutland um, at Black Pride 2017. As I was leaving, they were giving out condom packs and on the condom packs, it, was, it said, there's a drug that can stop you from getting HIV. Don't you think it should be available? And I knew of PrEP and I'd been following bits and pieces of stuff that had been happening in the US and issues that we've had here. Um, but I just also knew that a lot of people around me didn't know about it. I started doing tweets. And then from there, I started writing small articles on things that affect black gay men, 
such as stereotypes or consent. I stayed in contact with Mark and Will, and then I got invited to an event that they were doing on Prep 17, which is a, a documentary trying to raise awareness of Prep and discussing kind of issues around the availability of it. And I remember they screened the film. There was lots of like gay men in the audience and there was lots of questions and lots of fears around um, STIs and stuff around condomless sex and all the typical stuff that comes up whenever you mention prep. And I just remembered how they were navigating the situation and how they were handling the questions and things like this. And then it was just like, ooh, that looks like something that I could do. And I think that kind of motivated me to to go on to do things. Um, but I didn't know necessarily what... I was going to do. I figured that I could use the fact that I'm quite prolific on social media, especially Twitter, and I can just tweet about it and say, this thing exists. I think my initial hope was I could eventually get my hands on it and say, oh, guys, there's this brand new, I wasn't brand new, but there's this brand new medication that you can take that can stop you from getting HIV. I wrote about issues that affect black gay men in FS magazine managed to get a job at Terence Higgins Trust. Whilst I was doing that, I, I was ended up winning awards and I was doing lots of discussion panels, lots of podcast recordings. It became like a personal mission of mine to basically get prep in as many bodies as I possibly could. I think one of the first things was to try to get as many people on the prep impact trial, which initially had, I think, 10,000 spaces it just snowballed and got bigger and bigger we we worked really hard during covid and we put out a lot of really good information at a time where a lot of hiv and sexual health organizations were saying don't have sex and that was all of their advice at one point we were the only organization in the uk at the time saying you probably shouldn't have sex but if you do these are ways in which you can take care try to maybe have sex with the least amount of harm or these are services we provided like a covid hub where we had like services and stuff like that but like also simultaneously around that time, um, we got PrEP available in NHS. Then the government tried to take money away from what they said they would give us in terms of allocation and those sorts of things. What are the main challenges you face as a social activist? <laughs> they changed. They've actually changed. In the earlier days, when PrEP was less available, I used to get a lot of backlash around PrEP. So people would be like, what about STIs, which is the thing that comes up, or people should use condoms. It's really difficult to get an appointment in certain clinics, those sorts of things. There's just a lot going on and it's been quite challenging. There's a lot of like aggression towards that. I wrote a chapter in a book called Mandem and the chapter is called Condomless Sex because I wanted to talk about as gay men for the best part of 30 years, we were in instructed that the good way to have sex is to use condoms. And if you deter from that, then you're a bad gay. And I wanted to educate people around PrEP and around other kind of improvements in HIV prevention and just this concentration on gay and bi men specifically using condoms in the way that we don't police straight men. We don't police straight people. When a, a man and a woman have sex, it's just two cis people have sex and then that's it. And then you might ask, oh, did you use a condom? And be like, oh no, but she's on the pill and then it's fine. But when two gay men have sex and don't use a condom, then it's like we're up in arms. We're like deviants. We're spreading STIs. We're doing this. We're doing that. But my argument around condoms and stuff, I've learned to dispel it, dis dispel it by just by saying most STIs are actually passed on orally, so through oral sex. And a lot of the time, lots of gay men are not using condoms for oral sex. So what's that? There's also the fact that to get PrEP, you test every three months in order to get three months worth of PrEP. So you're actually testing more frequently. And also your STIs are probably caught faster because of that. 
SEIs have been going up since the 1990s, but that's also because we're actually improving in some ways in how we do surveillance and stuff like that. But a lot of people have now understood that PrEP is, is a preventative drug for HIV and HIV alone, and it is extremely effective and like it works and it's reduced cases from HIV in London from as far back as 2016. Important to me, it's personal to me because as a black gay man, I would like to reduce the kind of poor sexual health outcomes that black gay men have. It's really draining to try to draw people in. It also feels like it never ends. H, uh, HIV has predominantly affected black gay men since the 1980s and it continues to do. It's less so than it was, but still it, it keeps going. So it's like, when does this end? There's this whole talk on getting HIV transmissions to zero by 2030. But to be honest, I think that's bullshit because we don't have the resources to do that. And also the resources we have here in England, we don't have in certain parts of sub-Saharan Africa where there's high rates of HIV. We don't have the same rights. To say it is just lip service to me, to be honest. What kind of preconceptions do people get when they see you? Because you're really tall, aren't you? Yes, I'm 6'5", and people are really intimidated by me. People are scared of me, essentially, because I guess the negative stereotypes about what it means to be a black man and to be, like, scary and aggressive or... I don't know, people basically have a constant assumption that I'm, I'm going to either start some sort of trouble or rob them or attack them or something. I'm a, a quite sensitive person. I'm quite soft. I'm quite gentle. I try really hard not to come across as what people perceive me to be. And I feel like I have to try especially hard because not only am I ridiculously tall, but I'm also dark-skinned. So because of that, there's, that's another layer to that. And then I present in a more masculine way. So then people assume that I'm straight as well. It's, it's weird because I always felt that before I came out, I had all these stereotypes of what it meant to be black. And then once I came out, I had all these stereotypes of what it meant to be gay. But then they don't match up together. I don't meet the brief of what I'm supposed to be naturally. So then it's, do I then try to uphold this image of trying to be like a cis straight guy and try to behave like that because I'm gay, but I just happen to be gay or do I just be? And I think I came to that conclusion whilst I came out or whilst I was in the process of meeting men and, and dating and figuring my, my identity out is just that like, I can just be what I want. It's just like, it's exhausting to try to be either masculine because that's what you're supposed to be as a man. But then yeah. it's that thing that is desired in the gay community, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, really it's just frowned upon to be effeminate. Yeah, it's really funny. I think someone messaged me on an app yesterday and then they, they just, they were like, oh, this is my name. Here's two pictures. I'm masculine. I play football. And I was like, <laughs> Wow, I do not care. I hate football, so that that is so unimportant to me. You said something that really struck me about the stereotypes of being a black man and a gamer, and then trying to find yourself yeah. within those stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about a bit more about that? It just started to get quite exhausting. It was like, why do I have to be what is expected of me. I get a whole lot less when people say stuff like, oh, you don't look gay? Because I'm like, but I am. What does gay look like? It's like, you feel so so much pressure to be so many different things for so many different people. So sometimes, um, oh, maybe in my experience, I grew up in a home in which I had to, as if I was the perfect child, 
which then adds a pressure. So like I'm this pressure of I need to just behave all the time and not do anything out of line or do anything that will bring shame on the family. So then there's that from the, the family perspective. And then when you add like religion, growing up in, uh, I guess, a Christian home, thankfully we didn't go to church regularly, to be honest. So I, I really appreciate that. But the, the fact that you have then the pressures of you need to now marry a, a woman and you need to get married. And if all the negative things that are in the Bible about being gay. So then you have it from the cultural perspective, you have it from the religious perspective. Outside of that, then when you're going to school, then it's like the black straight men that are around me are like, you have to behave this way or you have to talk to girls in this way or you have to do that. So then there's all this other pressure. So I think it's just a lifetime of pressure of basically what everyone else expects you to be and then just taking the, the good parts that you want from those things and throwing away the bad things that you don't want and just being yourself. I wonder how much you've internalized that sort of people expect you to be violent. I, I got the impression when you were talking that a lot of your energy is spent diffusing tension or reassuring people. Yeah. You made me think of another stereotype, which is, do you play basketball? I guess that one's less offensive. Like, um, I have a kind of very calming, like, nature. And I'm always good with solutions. I didn't realize how sometimes I can be very logic-based when it comes to solving issues. And I didn't realize how my upbringing shaped a lot of who I am. In one of my housemates says that I'm very much like an uncle. And I didn't realize how much I was until he said it or how I reflected on it. But it's right. It's, it's weird how, although I've grown up in this country, I still have very West African kind of ways of being in my nature and with how I am. And I found it really interesting. A couple of years ago, I did a, a documentary and it was on African activists across the diaspora talking about our experiences and our upbringing. It's crazy that being in this country still, obviously it'd be very different if I grew up in Sierra Leone, but it shows how you still have a lot of those things buried in you. Yeah, it's some, uh, some elements of culture are not consciously or deliberately transmitted. But mm. we still pick up on that. Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram on idiosyncratic X. How can we support the love time? And is it possible to volunteer? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we're always looking for volunteers. Um, we have lots of different things on all the time. We're looking for people to take part in research, in focus groups. We're also looking for people that will be w willing to work with queer migrants or queer men of color. We can pay like up to a hundred pound to just do that. We can bring the people. We just have to bring the event. Well, thank you so much for having me again. Thanks everybody for listening and watching. Feel free to share, comment. Lots of love. See you later. Bye. -bye. Bye.